Welcome back, everyone, finally to the third episode of the Open Source Sports Podcast. My name is Ron Yurko. And I am Kostas Pelekrinis. And I'm thrilled to have announced that we are actually joined not by one, but two guests today, uh, Drs. Andrew Thomas and Sam Ventura, both of which have been mentors of mine throughout my career so far. And so Andrew Thomas is the Director of Data Science for SMT, Sports Media Technology, former lead hockey researcher for the Minnesota Wild, and received his PhD in statistics at Harvard University. Sam Ventura is the Director of Hockey Research for the Pittsburgh Penguins and an affiliated faculty member at Carnegie Mellon's Statistics and Data Science Department, where he also received his PhD. He is the co-creator, along with uh, Andrew of WarOnIce.com, NHL Scraper, and along with Maxim Horowitz and myself, the NFL Scraper Package. The only thing that currently still works technically is NHL Scraper somehow, if you do a little code wrangling, I guess. But uh, NFL Scraper no longer actually works. But welcome, Andrew and Sam. Glad you could join us today, because we're going to revisit a what I'll call a seminal piece of sports analytics literature, the competing process hazard function models for player ratings in ice hockey paper. Back to 2013. Hey, Ron. Hey, Costas. Hey, Sam. Good to see you all. Thanks for having us. Yeah. The, um, so it's a heck of a title, I guess. Um, and this is, a, in a way, more of a throwback than when we kicked off with Greg Matthews to discuss open war. So I think that was 2015, and now we're going back even further. But one of you could provide a little overview of you know, the motivation of this paper and you know, the decision making in general of what you were trying to do. Yes, that's going to take me back a while. Sam, I think um, I'm trying to think of the most positive reasons for this, but I think it's let's give Sam something to do. Well, that, that was definitely one of those reasons. Well, I, so I, I would just say in 2010, uh, Andrew was teaching a seminar course where we just read papers in sports analytics and discussed and critiqued them and we sort of you know would say uh you know if we were going to to do something similar how would we do it differently um how could we improve on it and then you know we had done this for four or five papers um and there was a hockey paper we read and uh you know we essentially said oh we actually should probably do this you know and that was kind of the the start of the project there. Yeah, we were definitely trying to replicate some earlier work, but but in our in our style, thinking that uh, I think we spotted. Well, originally the 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 approach for this came from basketball, which had a very kind of different structure for how players were getting together on the court. Like you had substitutions were much more rare, and scoring events were much more frequent than in hockey. You may have noticed this from scores being way bigger in basketball. So one of the things that came up from that is I wonder what happens when the assumptions change. And what can we do? What, what sort of modeling approaches can we use to, to use those assumptions in our favor as opposed to just trying to assume our way through them? So that's when we started going at the time interval stuff because it was more, because given that there's just a long wait between goals in hockey that happen a lot and substitutions happen on, on the order of once every minute or so in a 60 minute game. Um, once we started turning those around, we just started uh, toying with different approaches that we had and, uh, and then built a data set around that to accommodate it. Yeah, and I would I would add to that that you know the the initial work on this topic was led by Brian McDonald, 
um, sort of extending the basketball, uh, you know, adjusted plus minus framework into hockey. Um, and I think what Andrew and I did was really just um, taking Brian's work and trying to um, build the model in a way that was more like the real world structure of a hockey game. And so that's where the, the competing process uh, part of it comes in is, you know, the idea is you have these two competing processes, goal scoring on, on either the home or the away net uh, and to build that, build that into the model framework, as opposed to just plugging everything into a, you know, a linear regression model, like what had been done in the past. In particular, I think the model was, um, the linear model that the basketball papers were looking at was score differential. Like how many more points did one team get than the other point? So that was one, um, one aspect of it. Um, so that there was only one outcome as opposed to just the two where two teams are trying to score what's happening. Can you model those separately? And because, um, we wanted to try and measure offense and defense as each of those different processes, one team gets an offensive component in one and a defensive in the other. So I'm looking at the references right now and it reminds me, at some point, we were, we were having this discussion, probably in my office, and, uh, and Shane Jensen, who is, is, you will recognize from being one of the co-authors of this paper, uh, is in the room, or, um, or at least was nearby. He was definitely nearby for, the, for one of the, I think it was the summer of 2012, uh, when he was around. And we started talking about it, and, and Shane says, I'm, I'm definitely, it's been a while, so the events might not be exactly right, but I'm sure you'll, you'll allow me poetic license to uh, scope it the way I like it. Go for it. Shane, uh, Shane says, hey, you know, we're, we're considering a slightly different approach, which was a little more similar to the original, which was when the, next, when the goal scores next, who got it? Which team? And so they had a similar model using um, a regularized lo lo logistic aggression. I'm going to take that. Take two. Regularized Log logistic regression. I want to hear more about logistic aggression. That sounds, that sounds entire, really interesting. That's how I fight all my battles. It's the, uh, the most important component. So... Um, they had they had taken that that tool i think largely um because the co-authors had built a lot of really fast routines uh to build that stuff up in i guess it was r and, and c and uh in order to get the the regularized part to work really quickly so that was one of their first test cases so when we were thinking i had been working with kind of the same survival models and process models for, for a long time back, going back to 2005 and so i took out my favorite toy and applied it to the same problem and uh, and we each came up with a different approach for kind of how to look at it using using our favorite toys, and we each got a a different approach paper out of it. Huh. Uh, no, that's really interesting. I I did I all personally didn't know anything about the background with um. So I knew Shane Jensen was a co-author on this paper, but even this the two different uh, ideas you were both taking for this. I guess I guess so. The one thing I wanted to start with. Um, you mentioned about building off the work by Brian McDonald, where he was looking at regularized, uh, you know, adjusted plus minus from basketball work, applying it to hockey. But even going into that, the, the actual data collection process of this is one of the things that blows my mind in a way is, um, you know, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh, but I love, I know nothing about hockey and just thinking about how frequent line shifts are. So, you know, if you could go into the actual data gathering process and what is the design matrix that one is dealing with here when actually do modeling the data? Yeah, I, I think that's a, it's a good question because it 
plays off of what Andrew was just talking about. So in that prior work that Shane Jensen was a part of, um, I think it was uh, what Bobby Gramercy and a few others were a part of that work where they were really just using logistic regression, regularized logistic regression to come up with player ratings. So what they did was they, they just took the goal observations and looked at who was on the ice for when a goal was scored and then just were measuring the impact on the likelihood that the goal was scored for the home team or the away team given that, you know, player A, B, and C were on the ice. Um, so what that does, is it gets you an answer quickly, but it, it also throws away uh, everything that happens in between. Um, and so what happens in between is the bulk of a hockey game. I mean, that's like, you know, probably what, 99% of a hockey game is what happens uh, in between goals. So like you said, hockey substitutions are very frequent. Um, you know, players – are typically on the ice for maybe an average shift length of, well, now it's probably closer to 40 seconds. When we wrote the paper, it was maybe a little bit higher than that, but shift lengths have been getting a little bit shorter over time. Um, And so what you see there is you have two teams, five players on the ice for each team, and those players are substituting out every 40 seconds or so. Uh, And so what you get is, uh, you know, hundreds of quote unquote observations per game where each observation is just a, contiguous period of time where the 10 players on the ice are the same uh, and, you know, nothing happened or something happened or whatever. Um, yeah. I don't know, Andrew, do you want to? Uh... Yeah. So I know one, one thing we did was we cribbed it a little bit because, um, and this is something that I've become, that Sam and I are both much more intimately familiar with as time goes on, but the way that uh, the players are making changes is recorded up in in the booth by the uh, scorekeepers at the game where basically you have a one-on-one off substitution for skaters on the fly. We're coming off one at a time uh, and re-entering basically over, it could be over a period of five seconds, you're going to get 10 different substitutions. So um, one of the simplifying things we had done just to make it a little more tractable was to take the data, not from the shift changes explicitly, but from the full play-by-play, which had the players on the ice for every event that was being marked. And events happen about once every 10 seconds, according to that scheme. And so when we had um, a player changeover between two events, we just said, oh, they must have changed in between there, stick in a line change at this, about halfway between the two. So we- Effectively, uh, what that does is it, it, it throws out, it, it, you know, in, uh, under the way I described it, you would have a lot of observations that were one second long where, you know, I changed and then a second later, Andrew changed. And so you would have a one second observation in between there, but nothing is really happening in that one second and it's not really informative. And so we just sort of compressed it a little bit, I guess, in that for, way. For so the, so the, to answer your question, though, I mean, the design matrix, like what it is, is, you know, uh, one row is one, uh, you know, shift, as, as we're calling it, I'm throwing up air quotes here, uh, you know, where, where all the players on the ice are the same. Uh, and then the columns are just like it would be in any adjusted plus minus framework, you have a, um, an offensive and a defensive uh, coefficient for each player, uh, and then whatever else you want to control for. So I think in this paper, we had uh, the score state. Um, so, you know, was the home team up by two goals or, you know, questions like that? Uh, who was the home team? Um, what is the situation in the game? So is it even strength or power play? Um, and that, that was always with respect to the home team. Uh, and then probably some other stuff that I'm not remembering off the top of my head here, but you could imagine just throwing in whatever other 
you know, explanatory variables would help uh, with the modeling process here. And, and people, since we've written this paper, have done, I think, a better job of, of that piece of it than, than what we did. I mean, we were, um, not that we did a bad job, I just, you know, I think people have really explored that aspect of it in a lot more detail. Thanks. And the, the, um, I and guess the response, called... the response, by the way, is just, you know, was a goal scored for either the home, the away team, or was no goal scored. Um, and so what, what you end up getting is a really sparse design matrix, both in the response, because like Andrew said, you know, there's five or six goals a game. And then also in the, um, in the explanatory variables because you know there's something like 1500 players in the nhl each season and only 10 of them are on the ice at a given time so uh that's a pretty much the definition of a sparse design mm -hmm. matrix and then also dealing with the time until those scoring events taking place throughout the game too right the, yeah um, so i guess uh building off of that uh costas if you wanted to kick off some more of the discussion on the actual modeling yeah, yeah. So it's um, one of the things I like about the paper, and uh, I definitely I'm not an expert, not in hockey, but also in survival analysis, is um, so you chose this Cox proportional hazard model. Um, and the reasoning was that it cannot disassociate the temporal component uh, with the covariates. Uh, and even though you use for that paper, uh, you know, if, uh, temporal component that is uh, constant, uh, you say that, you know, you can incorporate different aspects there, like the location of the park and stuff like that. So my biggest question in general when it comes to survival analysis is how do you pick which model to use, right? So uh, the Cox model makes some assumptions about proportionality of the hazard. Um, there are other models like accelerated um, failure time that uh, you know, it looks more like a regression model. So how do you make a decision which model is more appropriate? And are there any checks that they have to, that have to be made to decide which model is more appropriate? So let's break it up into a couple of pieces. So one, one was we, we picked the Cox model because it was available and there, and we knew it and we understood it, but it also had a pretty clear, uh, appeal in that we had the connectivity between the, um, the hazard model shape and or the, the particular time varying part of the hazard model shape is something we knew could change um and then being able to not have to worry about how that combines with the extra covariates say at the player level or others that we we're putting in although in some cases we could have also done a hazard function uh time varying component that, that does change with the covariates that we're having like maybe the score behave the score functions behave differently when they're not tied for example something we can definitely see um so I know that there's definitely examples in the literature, in fact, at least in one of the previous papers that I had that show that for goals, if you're starting from a face-off in the neutral zone, like at the beginning of a game or after a goal, you do have a depressed period of scoring. So um, starting from that, it looked like the previous work that I had at least done had shown that the, the hazard itself within plateau after about 30 seconds, so that it was a natural place to say, well, it looks pretty much linear at this point once you keep going. Um, so let's use that model place to start with what we were building. Um, I'm not a time series guy by nature or necessarily a survival analyst much more than I am a uh, person who enjoys digging around for basic Bayesian models that, he, that I know how to code, uh, which was also part of the appeal for this was that it was um, building, building the particular um, 
Cox model with with proportional hazards for only on the the level uh, as opposed to the time variance was um, easier easier to put together than other models that I just didn't have any background in. That's the the shortest assumption or the shortest the shortest. Yeah, way to you kids have it so easy these days with all the the nice Bayesian packages that are already implemented where you can just code up your model really easily. It, I was going to say um, <laughs> I, one of the things I was going to bring up about. Uh, and I, I Googled this the other day of just actually checking. I'm pretty sure you can just completely implement what you did in Stan. Probably. Like, I'm pretty sure there's a Stan case study that's very similar, um, which would probably drastically increase even, um, well, maybe not drastically, but it would help probably in terms of like computational time of this. The, um, well, that just tells you, I think, a difference in the coding time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the difference yeah. of just when you did this versus now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would add just one more point to what Andrew was saying about the the model choice was another piece of it that I think was really important was that the you know we wanted the player ratings that came out of the model to be really easily interpretable, and so you know because of because of the modeling approach we use, you know, our, the interpretation of a coefficient for a single player was quite literally the impact that the player had on the rate of goals scored or goals allowed uh, for his team relative to an average player. Um, and so that, that was really important to us because when you have everything in terms of rates, you can really easily turn it into other, you know, other easy to understand statistics by just, you know, multiplying by time or, or something like that. Which is literally how we got goals out of this thing. So, yeah, I get. Yeah. So that's a good transition for something I want to ask you about. Was um, like, how did this fit into developing War on Ice? Um, I actually think, yeah, it fit in, but it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't like um, the cause and effect. I don't think was quite as direct as uh, a lot of people would think. Um, I mean, War on Ice was really. Uh, we, we were actually at a conference. We were at JSM. Um, in 2014, uh, it was 2014, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, when, uh, extraskater.com, which was like the, you know, the leading source of, of hockey data online, uh, was shut down because the, the owner of the site was hired by the Maple Leafs. Um, ah, and so there was this, we didn't know that. Yeah, we <laughs> didn't know it just shut down. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so there was this sort of gap in the market that we had to, uh, decide if we wanted to fill. And it was actually more just the fact that we had NHL scraper built, uh, you know, already we could build a website on top of that, that backend data pretty easily. Um, and we threw together the first version in, in a weekend. Um, this paper, um, played into the decision to call it, call the website war on ice because, you know, ultimately what our goal was, was to create a wins above replacement statistic for, for hockey, which, you know, there was some prior attempts at something similar, but we didn't think that, um, we thought we could do better, um, essentially. And so this paper really was, um, foundational to, you know, at least one or two of the core components of, of okay. our wins above yeah, replacement so metric. The, the modeling efforts that went into this to develop these ratings for the players and like you go into this paper, just the nice way of like comparing relative to the average player right and then you know naturally i was assuming this then was oh by whatever definition you contrive for replacement level 
then went in developing the goal component for wins above replacement for hockey players, right? So, like, th these modeling efforts were directly related to that piece of this, right? Yeah. Well, so, so one thing that definitely comes out of it is if you don't, if you don't care as much about the, the time hazard proportional model and you turn the outcome into something that's um, Poisson-like, which is what we, we end up doing for parts of it, uh, then you can just implement it directly in our directly in another function like um, with it with any kind of a regularized um, generalized linear model regression setup, which I think we used Glimnet at one point. I know I was using it later, but there's a few opportunities like LME4, Glimnet um, are the two big ones that were out there at least six six years ago. Um, so that one's much easier to code than any of the proportional hazard business uh, if you're just looking at it as as terms of an amount of account amount during a time because then the time component is just a base. Um, um, geez, it's been a while since I've even read an academic paper. Uh, the the um, offset, the, the natural offset is just the amount of t the log of the time. And then you can drop it into any kind of a, a, a regression setup that will host the same, um, that has the same setup. Now, when we had goals, uh, I mean, this is also around the time when people were getting a little more fanatical about shot attempts as a measure of interest even though there was some differential between goals and uh, block shots from far out, um, people were sort of treating them as the same. So during the development, during the, the, the fall of, uh, our first fall of War on Ice, we had started kind of playing around with that and talking to people and seeing if we could get some sort of a meaningful separation in the types of shots. Um, I think we ignored goals entirely as a factor, but just try to get it in terms of a probability model for how goals were scored. Um, along with having discussions about what it actually meant to have a block shot, um, especially since the locations of block shots were not completely available within uh, the NHL record. Um, at least not yet. They will be soon. Wink. But the uh, nice part of it is uh, um, we were discussed a lot with the community who are out there about whether or not our definitions had made sense, um, especially if a shot had missed from close range, for example. And that's how we, had, we started off by splitting that off into zones of danger which is why I'm very glad that we had statistics that uh, have their own theme song. So when we, we divided our shots into low, medium, and high danger shots, uh, it made it really easy then to just implement the model on each one of those different shot rate components and then break that out into a low, medium, and high danger component to shooting or, or, or to possession war or, um, or shot attempt war or shot attempt gar in this case because we were dealing with goals above replacement. So most of the tech that we had there, we just simplified it down in order to build it out for a more what we thought then was a more informative data set. Although uh, I'm sure Sam could also tell you one of the things that's nice about goals is there it's almost never in dispute whether one happened or not uh, from building to building. And it turns out that there's other considerations you have to make when a building has different ways of scoring shots or of locating them within uh, on the ice surface. So. Yeah, this is a this is an important point. Um, so, like this original paper that we're discussing here, you know, the response variable was goals, and so like our player ratings were uh, a player's impact on the rate of goals scored and goals against. When we moved over to War on Ice, um, the the response variable changed, uh, and and it changed sort of in response to what was happening in in the public literature at that time where. Um, you know, shot attempts or shots or unblocked shots were, were thought to be better predictors of future results than goals were. 
Um, and so we broke it down, like Andrew said, into, um, you know, the quote unquote danger zones, uh, as Andrew, uh, so lovingly came up with. Um, I, th I think I cribbed the actual name from somewhere else and I'll say that every time, but I will 100% take credit for it, the idea that we have a, a, a statistic that has its own theme song. That's amazing. Yeah. So I guess with that, the, um, you know, that, that connects to one thing of just like, the models in this paper are very complex. So, like I was just thinking in my head of actually if you were doing this in real time, like throughout a season or, you know, that's, it's not necessarily very practical, right? Versus not what like you this. ended up, yeah. <laughs> versus what you ended up switching to of more, a, a simplified version of not actually doing the hazard rate modeling, but more of modeling goals, uh, via Poisson model, and then with regularization, the, um, right, doing that switch when you were actually running the site. Um, I guess one thing, and maybe Costas, if you would want to talk, ask about this, you know, just thinking about um, in the context of expected goals, like how would that fit into this frame? You know, what you're just talking about in terms of like the... The, the danger zones are, are sort of just a really crude expected goals model where you have, you have three categories, you know, high, medium, and low. Um, and then you model the, the impact on the players impact on each one of those three things. Um, when I you have we, it, yeah. we thought about that quite a bit. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. sorry. I, I mean, we, we, <laughs> so, so I'm interrupting Sam as he's about to say exactly what I'm going to say, but, uh, um, it, when you have a continuous outcome like that, you can't, you cannot run a model, this model like that on that kind of structure because we dealt with discrete events. And I know we talked about doing something where you were modeling, first of all, the instance and then the gravity of the, of the shot based on each of those different factors, depending on whether one was taken. And I don't remember if we just didn't get around to doing it or we thought, oh, this is impossible, forget it. Or I left Florida because uh, all three of those are definitely very true reasons. Actually, this uh, brings me a question. So, when what run was uh, and you, you did when you moved from the full model to the uh, the one for the war on ice? Uh, have you thought of build of whether it is possible to build something similar to box plus minus in basketball, where basically you have the regularized adjusted plus minus that you get, you know, from whatever uh, regression regularized regression model you want to build and whatever priors you want uh, but then because data are not available for other leaks for example or you know going back in time people have built a regression on top of that to predict the player ratings using box score metrics which okay. everyone has if they are available do you think that could be something possible here so we we didn't think of it but other people did I think is the answer. Uh, so, so Shuckers, Michael Shuckers did something similar to that with his uh, total hockey rating. Um, and then there's some metrics that are floating around now that I think typically go by the name game score that uh, they don't do quite exactly what you're describing, but uh, they do something very similar. I think one issue with those approaches for this particular problem is just most things in a hockey box score are measuring offense and there's not a lot of things that are measuring defense in the, in the typical hockey box score. And so I think what you would get is you probably get re biased ratings towards 
you know, players who do the offensive things, yeah. but not the defensive things. Yeah. And yeah. it's exactly the same with BPM for basketball that the offensive component of it is fairly accurate. Uh, the defensive is, has these problems. So I remember the, like the original, um, Elardi Barzilai paper that Brian had started with did implement something that was like a box plus minus. They might not have called it that, but it definitely had the idea of, oh, let's use the in-game stats to do a regression on that. And the issue, I think we recognized immediately that it was just going to be ridiculous to try this with anything with the hockey data we had, because even beyond that, there's just so much less information in the stats we do get. So the current box, the what's currently in the NHL hits data for each of those different types are stats like, like hits, like, like body checks. Um, those, for example, have been valued by some as being as much as a quarter of a goal, which is ludicrous because even a shot is worth far less than that. And there's no way that a hit gets you five shots. But uh, then you have penalties, which already have their own value because they lead to other periods of uh, power play or of man advantage or man disadvantage. Um, uh, and, then, and then you have shots which we've already talked about incorporating that um, in the way that we already did uh, with the war on ice model, as opposed to taking it back and re-regressing re it to the other models that we had. Um, Sam, am I leaving anything out of the, of the list? I feel like there's one or two. Oh, turnovers and giveaways. Turnovers, right? yeah. Which, which were unreliable uh, and also rare, um, which had something of an offensive defensive component. So um, I think our initial feeling was this is just impossible to try with the amount of data we had. And... Um, the, the current versions of game score that's out there, um, there's one that's probably the most publicly quoted right now, and it's by a writer for The Athletic uh, named Don Luschicken. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. Don, I apologize if I got it wrong. Uh, where he uses assists uh, on goals as measures of contributions to a game. And I, I don't feel comfortable including that because of the pure randomness involved. But if we had more reliable data like um, assists on shots that didn't necessarily go in, um, if we had more contextual data that would go into it, we'd be able to construct something that was like that. Um, the only question is, would we? Because then if we've got information about more defensive contributions directly, it might suit us, uh, might suit some of us who are going to be looking at that data in detail uh, to figure out more uh, direct ways of assessing value. So, If only there was some company that was maybe, I don't know, making this data and, and giving it to teams or something. <laughs> if only. Well, the funny thing is this, is, this data is available um, because other companies have been co collecting some event level data. Um, I won't name them because I don't want to give, uh, oh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, you, you just Google for either Sportlogique or Stathletes and you'll find them very quickly. Companies that have been out there doing eventing data for years on the NHL and other, um, other uh, leagues that are out there. And that comes back to the same problem. Almost everything you're looking at is an offensive contributor. If, you, if you're making a pass or you're entering a zone, it's just going to give you more evidence about offense that you already kind of have through the inference of when shots happen based on players on the ice. So figuring out those defensive contributions are often going to rely on either finding defensive statistics to tabulate and give credit to, like blocks or rebound, rebound recoveries or things that you'll see in basketball more routinely, or you're just going to be modeling using the same sort of framework we have anyway for defensive contributions, given that the players are on the ice and you have to sort out their respective impacts. So. Yeah, it's, uh, nice. so, so my next questions are a little more technical. Uh, so I'll start with uh, uh, something that's pre pretty easy, I feel, but uh, when it was more of a clarification. So when you do partial, partial pooling, 
So does this essentially mimic having a different prior for different positions and abilities? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we had a different prior. We had the same prior form. We had it um, in each of those cases, either except for goaltenders, because we know that goaltenders, we assume that goaltenders have zero impact on offense, which is basically true. Uh, mm -hmm. Pecorino's uh, long shot notwithstanding, but uh, um, for the sake of what we were able to model from the data, we just assumed the goaltenders had no offense or no offensive component. Um, and so you use um, you have the elastic net regularization, and um, it was not very clear to me what exactly is, is the variability that um, is measured from the fraction best explained from the Laplace term. Uh, does it give us something different than the, looking at the coefficient and extreme values of it? Or the standard deviation, for example, over the mean coefficient? Uh, I think the main purpose was just if you're using an elastic net and you're setting it like you are, then you're going to get zero, you're going to get a bunch of players zeroing out. Um, because just dealing with a bunch of extra players themselves, just getting the number of uh, potential different players down um, proved to be the most useful. Um, for what we're trying to do. But then again, in the Bayesian context, it wasn't going to make as big a difference. It was just hammering it much more towards the exact value of zero. Um, I think the short answer is we chose it because it performed better. <laughs> like we actually did fit it and it, and it gave better, um, better outside performance. I say that and I'm looking at the paper itself and I don't actually remember if that's the case. Um, it may have also been the case, well, why don't we just try, try fitting it and seeing what happens. Um, because we were dealing with a full Bayesian concept, we weren't actually zeroing anything out. We were just pushing it more towards zero. And, um, and I believe in that case, yeah, so, go ahead, some, some of these decisions were pretty organic. So like, I remember, um, you know, we've tried a, an L2 or a Ridge um, penalty at some point and ran into issues there. And um, we, I think the optimal, uh, lambda value for the L1 penalty ended up zeroing out like, you know, 90% of the players or something, which we also felt like maybe wasn't the best thing. And I, I think that the choice to eventually use elastic net was really more just sort of feeling out the results as opposed to giving some kind of optimal, uh, you know, whatever statistic that comes out of that model. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Well, we also definitely, it did outperform. Once, once we end up coding them both up and trying three versions of the models, we did get better in, in and out of sample performance using the full elastic net. Uh, although it was, it was mild. The, the, the gain in performance depended on the, on the season, but in each case it, over, it outperformed. Um, yeah, I, I seem to remember though, I mean, the other thing to remember here is that again, like for this paper, we were using goals as the response variable, which is a really yeah. sparse response variable. And I, I think when we switched over to shots at different danger levels, you know, so obviously there's going to be more shots in a game than goals. Um, I think the differences in the model quality uh, were a lot more apparent when we made that switch, but that's, I'm going strictly off memory there, Andrew. I don't know if you have the same, maybe that's just a story that I made up in my head <laughs> in the intervening years, but. Um, possible. It's been a long time. Yeah. But the, um, I'm trying to remember if there was an actual impact that we saw in the results. And I think we deliberately tried to avoid looking at the results before we judged the fit um, for sensible reasons. Um, but at the same time, I, th I think, I, I I think we, we, we looked at the results one morning before we were presenting this at a conference and, the, and we're like, Oh shit. 
<laughs> I think we did something wrong. But well, that's a story for another day. So well, the nice the nice thing was the results we came up with made plenty made perfect sense. So we followed the eighty we followed the eighty twenty rule pretty well there. Um, now I do know that in future I know um, we didn't we actually came back to the idea of replacement players and and low context and one of the advantages with any kind of a shrinkage is we're going to get um, players who didn't play very much shrinking to zero in both cases just because you have little data and that um, that pri that now prior weight uh, is going to focus back in on them and so we ended up seeing in the results that we got very few very negative results they were almost all very positive which is good because if you had a player who was consistently stinking up the joint you figure and you hope that the coaches would get the hint and not give them more opportunities so um, we did see a little bit of skewness in that we had ex more extreme positive results than negative in whichever direction we're talking about here either goal creation, which, which should be positive, or goal suppression against, which should be negative if you're uh, reducing the rate. So um, we were seeing some of that behavior early on when we were just looking at goals, but because it was still a fairly weak signal um, at the goal level compared to something as, as robust as uh, high danger shots, um, that would have a greater impact later when we were trying to figure out what that zero point was and how the models would behave. Okay, nice. Um, so also following up on that, um, uh, on the player ratings, you had a discussion about um, the chemistry of a team where you focus on pair of players. So my, what came to my mind when I was reading that is why not focus on whole lines um, and, for example, run the same model with covariates being lines, uh, you know, the, line of the, the lines of the two teams, and then check whether the coefficients that you get from running the model on lines uh, is different than just the sum of the coefficients from the individual players. And that could be as they have better chemistry, the more, better than the sum of the parts or worse chemistry. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the main reason is just that we really wanted to have marginal effects for individual players, uh, their effect on offense and their effect on defense. Um, I, I don't necessarily, I don't know if, you know, it might be better to, to fit the model with full lines. Like I know that's what um, is done in basketball a lot with, you know, three or four or five person lineups um, and including those as terms in the model. Um, you know, I, I think we could make up reasons why we didn't do that. But I think the, the main one is just that uh, we, the goal of the paper specifically was to, to measure players' marginal effects on um, offense and defense. So this is one of those things where, Costas, you mentioned something that, kind of, that did occur to at least me later. Like, let's try it with this and see how it reduces our, our among other things, if it reduced our dimensional problem by having fewer lines. And I think part of the issue was that a line didn't always stay together the whole time. Um, and so we were causing ourselves more problems by having a more enhanced model like that. Um, another is that we didn't have at the time a good way of uh, sharing information across lines with common players. So, you know, if, if you do have a line where, uh, for example, Patrice Bergeron, I'm just picking a name that I know plays today, uh, but has been in the league for a long time. Um, he's had a fairly consistent line now for the last couple of years, which is, which is good. Um, but then getting back the, um, the individual component from that is going to be tougher if they don't play as many minutes with other players as they do. Or if they've played across a bunch of lines, there's other um, 
kind of background reasons for that. Like maybe they haven't, maybe they're underperforming and, and we have a little um, confounding there because the coach has decided to mess things up. There's lots, lots of different possibilities there. But you yeah. know what, it, along the same lines though, it might actually make more sense to do it with defense pairings as opposed mm -hmm. to forward lines, you know, so defense pairings are only two people. So the, there's not quite as many combinations, obviously. And then there's also typically only six defensemen uh, who dress on a team in a given game. And so the number of combinations is even smaller. Uh, you might actually be able to get better, um, better fit from, from doing that. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, so one of my favorite things on, on the paper, which though I didn't understand the technical details, and that's my question, is uh, when you do the application of finding a team's MVP or the LVP, which I think it's uh, even better. Um, but I didn't quite understand what the L1 cascade model does. Is there a quick way to say what this model does? There will be as soon as I go and find the part in the paper. Um, but, I w but I will mention offhand that uh, of the players in the LVP category, uh, I've now met three of them. So it's, uh, I'm glad they didn't read this paper before I met them in person. <laughs> so if amazing. I remember correctly, the, the L1 cascade method was we're essentially moving the lambda across some, some window um, and then waiting for a player to pop out uh, as being... Uh, as not being zeroed out in the model, um, either yeah. in the positive direction, which would be the quote unquote MVP, uh, or in the negative direction, which would be the quote unquote LVP. So, so it was like a, um, let's say, a sequential variable selection kind of. Exactly. Exactly what it's, it was. It's like a heuristic based approach, though, right? Yeah. Like zero. Well, well, I know that I've seen um, in other approaches with the lasso. Um, definitely this sort of approach being used where you relax the L1 constraint until you had new variables appear and they tended not to, to disappear. Um, so at, at that choice, we were trying to figure something out ju just where we could get a smaller number, um, a smaller number of relevant players, because then if we were keeping the teams uh, in the model and fixed, then it would be, um, then that was just a way of choosing the ordering in which we were getting everything to come out. Um, because another thing, another thing we considered for the MVP was just taking the NHL scoring leaders and sorting by points, and then choosing that person as the MVP, which is how, it's how they it's do it in the real world. Typically chosen <laughs> these days. Sorry, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> it's actually funny. I'm looking at the best the best player list, and you you get uh, from 2011-2012, and you get some names in there who are undeniably high talented players. I mean, the top four. Right now, it's Jordan Eberle, who was playing for a really terrible Edmonton team, but himself is a, is a good player. Uh, Steven Stamkos, who at that point was a, um, a talent. I mean, he's still a, a very talented player and very up there, but I'm trying to think of the team was very good. Uh, Sidney Crosby was next, and he was a good player on a good team and still performed very well. Uh, John Tavares is, uh, was a very good player on a, bat, on a not great team then, which is why he's no longer with them today. But even then, he was only in the league for about three years. So the 21-year-old still performing very well. And, uh, and then you get some players on here who are a little more interesting, like, uh, like Marcus Foligno, uh, who at the time says playing for Ottawa. And I'm wondering if that's possibly right. It must, it must be true because we said it in our paper. Um, but Marcus Foligno is not known for being a high-level talent. He was, he's now a, a, basically a third-line player. And also, according to everybody I worked with at the Wild, exceptionally good-looking. Uh, so maybe his, that's, that's where some of his value came in. Uh, 
no, apparently it was a typo. He was he definitely did not play for uh, for uh, them. So okay, good. We we spotted something to fix. So maybe it was Nick Foligno because he definitely did play for Ottawa at one point. Uh, yeah, because it must have been Nick Foligno. We put the wrong Foligno in. Uh, he is definitely someone who's known for for being a uh, an, a contributor in more ways than that. So uh, so I'm sorry, Marcus. Nick Foligno might not be as good looking, but he definitely was more known for being a high level contributor. Uh, but I mean, we're getting a bit of both in there. We were finding, we were selecting according to a different criteria um, that still did detect some of what was coming up in the, uh, you know, the broadcast world, which comes back to the same point about, you know, how our results would be received. Is this off? Is this on? And it came back to that, that, that idea that if you're getting about half of them the same, I mean, the 80-20 rule is how I've heard other people express it. If you have 80% of the same, the same judgments or same agreements about players, then people will be more willing to accept your other 20%, at least for discussion, because it really opens up where you might have reasonable differences. And that was one thing I actually did really like about our approach is we were finding um, differences, but not too many with others in how we were putting this together uh, about how some players had value. And that meant uh, we weren't necessarily being laughed out of the room when we presented this. Interesting. Okay, because actually... You previously had mentioned the 80-20 rule, and I just actually assumed in the top of my head you were talking about cross-validation, 80% training, 20%. <laughs> but, yeah, but you were actually talking about a comparison of what you're doing objectively with whatever statistical analysis approach versus then having to communicate with these non-technical people to mm -hmm. sort of then gain their trust via that way. I guess, so one of the things that this kind of leads into is um, the idea, and you know, this is something I've talked with Sam, because is about, many times of thinking about how we actually assess all of this. And, you know, I could take a jab at the recent Nate Silver tweet of uh, there's, you know, the only reason to judge causality or whatever is just look at predictive performance. That's all that matters in the end anyway. Yeah, <laughs> that, that hurt a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, but thinking about actually assessing these player ratings, because in the end, like the player ratings, it is an inference problem. All right, so I, I think fundamentally you want to have, you know, the, the, the ideal world is to get the causal impact of a player, right? That is the ideal world that we're never going to really actually get to, right? But how do we then assess these current estimates that you're getting? Is it really just about how well these models end up actually predicting the goal scoring behavior on these teams out of sample? Is it about the relative stability of these players, but then you have the problem of their aging curves over time. Like how do you think about assessing these player ratings besides just, Hey, these model likelihoods are really great out of sample. What about the actual ratings themselves? Oh geez. What a long, what a, what a well, long deep and involved question that describes our discipline. <laughs> I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is just like the, the statistician's answer, which I think will be suitable for most of your audience, is to just read the meta-analytics paper uh, that came out a few years ago. And in fact, you should probably just have those folks on for your next episode, because I think it's a really important topic uh, and it would probably be interesting for most of your uh, listenership. But I have some That's other idea. ideas about that uh, that I'm not going to share. So I'll, I don't know if, uh, <laughs> if Andrew has anything, but I'm, oh, I'm going to keep my answer to myself. Well, I think there's two pieces of it. There's the actual numerical estimate you're coming up with. 
and there's the way in which you're discussing what that means with your client or with or with your decision maker and if we're talking about how people are going to use these things in in a team environment as i'm sure sam has some thoughts about and i used to have some thoughts about and i might someday have thoughts about again uh Part of it is just figuring out where you're some, whether or not you've thought of everything that the person you're trying to discuss this with has also thought of. Like, there are there are lots of cases where I've even heard like decision makers in the NFL publicly talk very badly about how they, you know, the running game's essential because the best teams all run. And I'm not much of a football fan, but I do also know that running teams tend to run more when they're in the lead. So therefore, of course, running yards are going to be correlated with wins, but not for the reason they think. So when it comes down to these kinds of quantities that we're putting together, I want to make sure that we've covered those kinds of questions. I want to make sure that whatever I've done, I'm trying to match up with the, with the answers that the simple answers that I know are coming back because then I can start to have a real conversation about, well, yes, this person did contribute, you know, 15 goals worth of information. Now let's figure out what would, why, why would this be consistent if we were moving forward? And in the case of making a trade or assigning a player as a free agent, those are of course going to be, the first consideration, why you would want those and what their, their value is going to be. So when you're having those discussions with people who actually matter, they, they tend, sorry, people who actually make the decisions for these things, we all matter. We're all, we're all one big happy family. Um, these things are going to, how, how the actual numbers themselves, you know, round out to the next decimal place are going to be less important than the assumptions you put into it. Uh, because I think a lot of people do know that players value is going to go down as, as they're aging. We do know that there's an upper limit on a lot of these things. Um, we do, the, the other, I don't know if, I, if I've completely circled around the question you already asked to begin with, but um, coming back to even just Nate Silver and other people who are out there, um, people who make decisions don't use no statistics, they use bad statistics. Like you'll still get people quoting plus minus all the time. And all we're trying to say is look, plus minus has problems, but this version of it is better and will tell you more of what you want to know than the number you had before. So if we're trying to make upgrades over the things that people are already using to make their decision, to make the decisions to begin with and explain to them why the things they didn't think they had accounted for are being accounted for here, then no matter what method you're using or whatever um, machinery you use to put it together, if you can credibly show that this is going to do better in the long run for whatever estimate they're trying to find, and maybe that means finding cases like players who had good plus minus but then we're terrible the next few seasons in terms of something else that was interesting. Um, that's definitely where you're going to get more people's attention as to why this stuff has value. Um, I may have definitely completely circled around the question. No, no, no. What you're talking about makes complete sense because it, it's, it's, it's in the challenge of you're viewing as this is an upgrade of pre-existing things. So in a way that's, you're justifying based on whatever underlying assumptions of this model form to help get better estimates or more informed ratings, you believe, than things that are already existing. And then explain why certain estimates or these end of uh, comparisons between players change based on the assumptions you've imposed upon your model uh, and the framework you've used. Yeah, actually, I want to follow up a little bit on, on that. In the parenthesis, I think for the running game, the threshold is about 31 plays, and then you, you win the game. Uh, but uh, <laughs> for the player ratings, one thing that I have been thinking a lot when it comes to basketball, and I'm sure hockey might be similar, 
is, you know, you have players that change teams and uh, maybe in one team, you know, they are the one, you know, the first or second option and they have a specific performance and a high rating, but then they change team and they become you know, the sixth player um, or the, their role on the team is very different. Right. How would the, a model, either the one that you have developed or, you know, other plus minus would be able to contextualize that? I'm not sure that the model in this paper completely does that. I mean, I think it, it does as good as you can given what data is available publicly and that we're trying to estimate the best marginal effects that players have on, on offense and defense uh, that we can. But I, I think Rick, to really answer that question, you need more detailed data. You need to know how players are impacting specific parts of the game as opposed to just the general terms offense and defense yeah um, i mean in theory in theory we're trying to do that we're trying to say well players not getting as much ice time as they used to they're playing with inferior players against a different opposition and and so we're, we're baking some of that in but i agree it's completely it's 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 not sufficient to say a player who's going to have this even though that's what the model says realistically other things change that we're not measuring for even if it's just uh, at the macro level, um, because player a player may be told to play differently in their style um, mm -hmm. than they were before, and they could effectively be a slightly different player in the way that they play the game. So statistically, I know that the the first answer to that would be well, just have each player have multiple player ratings for a player, loop them together with a common uh, hierarchical structure, and and then you would have a common player rating. And then a, on one team, you played better, and the other team, you played worse. Um, so statistically, it would incorporate a lot of those features while just adding extra terms to the model. Uh, but I'm not sure that would really get to the importance of why the rating was different, rather than having, um, than having other pieces of the model come, kind of impact it in different spots. I think in basketball, people have tried to tackle this by, by just estimating player effects on specific things in the game whether it's um you know like a, a shot map um on the basketball court or uh estimating player effects on um steals or, or other events that happen you know rebounds or whatever in basketball um, i think people have tried to to hone in a little bit more uh in recent years i'm remembering a talk by i think it was Jacob Mortensen, he's part of the Bourne clan um, at at Cassis a few years ago that was doing some of this, um, but I, I don't remember all the specifics, but I, that, that seems to me to be what the state of the art is in basketball, at least publicly. Um, so yeah. I don't know if that, that answers your question. But. Yeah, yeah, it creates a kind of a follow-up, but uh, I think it's more interesting uh, you know, as a philosophical question. This might point to some of the limitations of these models, right? Because, for example, when you want to rate a player, specifically when you go more detailed on, you know, what they were supposed to do on the field or on ice or on court, whatever, um, you need to know what they were supposed to do, right? Uh, so, for example, and, and that's something that um, 
many people have said about PFF, for example. So how you grade someone, especially in football, that it's pretty complicated when you don't know what their assignment was. Uh, for example, for a running back, was it to block a specific player? What was what were they supposed to do? So is this something that would always be a limitation? Well, always be a limitation. That that really you need to have knowledge of what the team, what what a player was supposed to do based on the team strategy. I think if that's the case, you're rating against your expectation of what a player should be, rather than what a player is actually doing. And doesn't a player have to take account? Of, this is my counter argument here. Doesn't a player have to take accountability for their actions one way or the other? And uh, I, ultimately, if you are talking about transferring someone to a new team, then you should be absolving them of what their coach is telling them to do or what their system that they've play, been played in is, is true. But I think the, the shortcut around that is we're answering two different questions. Um, I don't say I love the shortcut, but we're definitely saying we're, we're estimating what happened rather than what should happen. I don't know. I'm, I think I'm more cynical on that question. I think, I think hockey is probably the least – I think that's probably least true in hockey – of all of the sports that you mentioned, just because the, of the random nature of the sport. Um, like there's not quite so much structure as there would be on a designed passing play in football. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I was obviously like... players have assignments in their defensive zone. And if you knew how those change from team to team, you could account for them and, and probably better understand defensive performance. But I, Number one, you can't do that. And number two, I think the degree to which that's true is just so much uh, smaller in, in hockey compared to, you know, other other sports. Well, yeah, was... systems too. Everyone uses the 1-3-1 the one, one power play. So and you have three variations of a penalty kill and five or six to different variations of a breakout play. Like when, a, coach, when a, t- a player gets traded to a new team, it takes 20 minutes for them to go over the book. It's, it's, it does not take a lot of time to know what the coach is expecting of them it does take more time to figure to actually adapt to that and, and know what role you're supposed to play. And, um, but yeah, I, I agree with Sam's point there is that you're, you're dealing with a lot less, even because it, during the game, you, you're not coaches shouting out uh, instructions to players on the ice is not nearly as rigid or uh, meticulous as it is even in basketball where you, you know, you've got plays that are, that can be set up a lot more um, by the book. Um, and then football is just a whole other universe of that, where a player's specific assignment is very the, the route they're going to run or the player they're going to cover is explicitly spelled out, um, much more than the fluidity. So I don't know if it's necessarily noise; it's just lack of structure that would be responsible for a lot of that. Yeah, that makes sense because I was thinking about. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure. My, Sorry, I was just talking out. over you. No, no, it's fine. Because yeah, I'm related to what Costas was talking about the end as you said like football has this rigidity of players playing certain personnel packages on a particular team and like you can understand a wide receiver's effect because this team you know accounting for if you have the data of like oh they always play with two tight ends or whatever the um and then hockey much more so than basketball I guess even it's just so out there I guess in in terms of that lack of that particular structure setting without I guess even what being implied here is even if you do work for a team there is not necessarily that particular uh, known like types of formations or whatnot like this is someone that has zero hockey so <laughs> there are definitely <laughs> this very poorly but no I mean there's definitely like well-defined systems like don't don't get me wrong and what I'm saying I just 
I think the degree to which they would matter for the estimation of player effects is much smaller than than what would matter in in football especially but i think also basketball and and probably soccer too so i i think as something to um as we start to wrap up it's been a great discussion by the way um thinking about the sort of the impact of this work and then also of you know, war on ice in general of how have you seen uh, the public work of estimating player ratings or the, the work towards uh, creating war values for hockey players how has that evolved since you first took your stab at it many years ago now well in the six years or so since we launched war on ice the data hasn't the public data hasn't measurably changed um, it's the private data with other companies that have been collecting that has gained some pieces and it's tough to evaluate, um, what they, what people have done with separate pieces. But I think the biggest issue is now that you have more micro level information and I'm, I'm, I'm shortchanging someone like Corey Snyder, who's out there collecting and charting every game for entries, exits and passes, uh, like a superhuman. I don't know how he does it. Um, people are starting to look more into those individual pieces. Um, people are also starting, have been tracking their own data for the sake of these projects a lot more than I think we would have done. Um, except I'm remembering that thing I did where I collected my own data in grad school and it was a pain in the ass. and I didn't want to have to ever do it again. Um, people have been willing to assume that piece for doing their own smaller scale investigations. And I think with something like Corey's data, um, people have started to put together other models. Uh, they try to incorporate those same pieces and build on top of that. But I think the attention has mostly been paid on micro level skills as opposed to total player assessment. And I think rightly so, just because it's less important than you think it is to get a player, a player's total, an evaluation of a total player uh, as one big number, as it is to understand the individual skills of a, of a player and how they fit into a micro level observation. So most of that, what I've seen in the public sphere has been reflected around that. And a lot of it is, has been driven just by data availability as well as by individual desire. Yeah, I, mean, I think people, there are a couple people who are still squeezing more information out of the public data. Like I think Micah McCurdy, uh, you know, who runs hockey viz is ineffective math on Twitter. You might know him by, um, is doing some really good work along those lines. Um, and then the, the folks at Evolving Wild are, are implementing models that are similar to what Andrew and I were doing uh, as well. So I, I do think there's actually, there's a couple more things you could do with the public NHL data that I, I'm surprised no one has done yet, but uh, that's a discussion for another day. But I think Andrew's point is, is a good one. Like it's really just, there's, there's an upper limit to how much information can be squeezed out of one data set. And uh, we are very close to that upper limit right now. Yeah. Come on, someone tell us now so we can write the next paper. <laughs> what, what more can you do? This is where just a little bit of uh, hard thoughts and ingenuity uh, and understanding of the data will go a long way if you want to make an impact in the hockey analytics uh, research field. I will say this, um, I would be much, I'd be super excited to see more causal inference thinking applied to some of this data. And I remember that uh, Asma Tumi had done a poster on exactly that uh, at um, 
It was Nessus uh, this past year in 2019. She presented a poster where she had data from one of those tracking companies. And also with, a talk at the Carnegie Mellon Sports Analytics Conference last year as well. That, that's right. Uh, she, she did quite a bit with, with um, I think it was with Mike Lopez. Uh, is that right? Ms. Yeah. Lopez? yeah. Uh, it was about using matching methods to figure out when entries and exits were, uh, had what the value was based on um, various extra criteria. And a lot of what we see as causal inference um, methodology can be fairly well understood from the context of we want to make these things look the same except for this one thing that we care about. And a lot of the regression-based models wouldn't, don't really touch that um, for the sorts of player evaluations we're talking about. Um, but at the same time, setting up something that looks like a natural experiment or a quasi-experiment on this stuff is something I'd, I'd be really excited to see in a lot of these different contexts. Uh, to play the devil's advocate, couldn't just be out of sample performance? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Now we're going that's... in circles because then it's how do you evaluate the metrics that, uh, that we're coming up with, so. Yeah. <laughs> Gustus, do you have anything else you want to ask about? Yeah, one last question, basically on things that might have happened since the paper. Because uh, you had mentioned the paper, a lot of uh, interesting uh, extensions that you could have, for example, considering the location of the park, uh, aging care of sore players, um, have, have you tried, have you done any of that? I'm trying to remember if I ever did any of this stuff more uh, privately, and I'm sure I did. And the fact that I forget, forget what comes up is probably for the best for a lot of these things. Um, I do know that publicly people have really looked at these sorts of rates after face-offs. So knowing location affects the short-term scoring rate, um, trying to figure the effect of a zone start is definitely something that has been incorporated into private, uh, public models that are out there um, with varying different ways of doing it. So you could just stick in a term that says offensive zone start and get a response out of that, but it might not be particularly informative. Um, I know that others have looked at time after face-off as a part of that model directly, um, confining it to more uh, direct circumstances, like it was an offensive zone face-off that the attacking team won. Um, that has definitely been included in various different places. Um, I will tell you that I've included it. I just don't remember how effectively how much it changed anything. Um, most of the cases of interest here are going to be um, for largely for academic purposes once you figured out whether the effects are actually meaningful. And as I recall, most of the effects that you're getting at the, pl at the, at the player level, and the, I'm just, at this point, I'm making up, I might as well just preface it with take zero confidence in this. But I recall that I think it was the players you were playing with had more impact than where you were starting or how you were starting. Um, not to say it's zero, but, but at that point, it seemed almost like rounding errors to me when you included some of those different features. But I do know that people have tried to look at it in all sorts of different ways to get meaningful information out of this. That at least isn't 100% true. I guess one last modeling question I'd have to ask is um, something I was just thinking about. I don't know if this is even meaningful at all, is within the context of the time component and even thinking about not necessarily um, uh, like the very, the time, the, like the, instead of keeping it constant and including covariates within modeling the actual hazard rate, but actually thinking of the, um, like an interaction between players and uh, the time into a shift and how that could affect 
because honestly, my limited hockey knowledge, I think of Phil Kessel always and just he was very different, I thought, in terms of how long he was on the ice or when he would attempt to shoot when he was on the ice. And just is there is someone or have you looked at any sort of relationship between just even the time on the ice for a particular player? Like, is there an individual player level component to the time of the shift for goal or, or shooting rates? I think you have to be a little careful there because a player could be on the ice for a long time because he's being very successful and, and pinning the other team in their defensive zone or because he's being very unsuccessful and getting pinned in his defensive zone. So I think like, it's, it's a situation where you would have to have more data to really understand what's happening on the ice. Like you have to remember in this paper, we really didn't have that much. We don't know too much about what's happening in, you know, in between each event that's being recorded by the NHL. And so you can't say too much about why uh, players are on the ice for a long period of time. And I think that's sort of the question you're asking is, you know, if you knew that, if you knew that players were on the ice because they were playing poorly on the ice for a long time, because they were playing poorly, then um, that might give you uh, more information to use in the model. Right. But yeah. I, I don't think we know that in the public data. But again, if only there was some company that was going to provide data on the locations and trajectories of players in the puck, that would be, uh, that'd be nice. If only. If ifs and buts for candies and nuts. The one thing I think is kind of funny, actually, for the, the modeling of this paper, it, there is the assumption of the independence between the censoring time and the events. And then you clearly say at the end of the paper, obviously, this assumption is incorrect. <laughs> the, clearly, um, clearly incorrect. Yeah, clearly incorrect. The, um, so I guess one, there's a, do you, are you concerned at all how the violation of that, what, what, what me, the impact of that has on all of the estimation you're actually doing then versus how do you address it then? Is it just accounting for additional context to like conditioned on the wind probability at a particular moment, you adjust for how censoring times could change. Because um, I know Mike Lopez has talked about, I, I've seen at least tweets about um, the how boring hockey moments can be at times versus uh, whether Because they be, suddenly can just happen rather than, rather than sustained pressure or- Yeah. yeah. Like have you, so uh, regarding that assumption, um, I guess that's a big question of like, what is the impact of that versus how do you address it? I don't know. Pro probably, uh, it's, I mean, there's lots of, of statistical like chicanery you could put into a model like that to, to uh, adjust for it if you needed to. Um, I think we get into it. I, I, the, the real correction to me is let's get more data and let's, let's dig into that question deliberately because if there is a reason why you are being, like if a goal does happen after a summed up um, it, it, it clearly does happen in this case that shift that position affects shift length or uh, on ice location affects shift length because you can have something going for a minute or so in the zone and maybe that results in fatigue in a goal um, compared to say rush plays where it's going to happen a little more quickly for that but could also fall it off a long shift to the other way because a breakaway results um, from something like that um, so I think having a better just understanding of, of why of, of how goals occur um, is definitely a piece of that. 
Now, I say that, and I seem to remember um, other research being done and presented at Carnegie Mellon um, at some point, even six years ago. Um, I think this was Jen Luke Costella, who was presenting uh, information that she'd got about the scoring time of goals in, in zone uh, following entries, and she seemed to find that it happened very quickly uh, for the most part, which makes some sense in that zone time. So zone time itself tends to be very quick, tend to only be like 90% of the case, you're going to be in there for 10 seconds or less. Um, and then it's the longer cases that are driving when goals are going to happen. So a lot of the machinery seems to be there to kind of adjust for it, at least heuristically. I think we'd have to have a deeper discussion about the theory of how that was going to happen before we'd I'd be, feel comfortable putting that in a, a bigger, more authoritative model. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Costas, do you have any final no. questions? No. Because uh, I know I asked that before, and then I asked about three different things. <laughs> <laughs> But I think before we continue on and attempt to top our time of the first episode, we'll avoid doing that. And uh, thank Andrew and Sam again for joining us and bringing back a memory of a paper from quite a while ago. And I should mention that you know you brought up the uh, six years ago or whatever it would have been the um, the first official sports analytics conference event that took place at Carnegie Mellon, being the uh, the hockey analytics uh, workshop that took place. Yeah. Um, and then now we've continued on to have, you know, a full fledged conference that is coming back again in the fall for a full virtual event. Yeah. Um, and, and two Stanley Cups among us. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, I'm definitely looking forward to virtually being in your acquaintance for the next version of that, but you've taken it. Uh, I know Ron in particular has put a lot of hard work into growing that into what it is today. And I'm sure Sam has had some contributing impact both on the conference and on indirectly through Ron. So I think that, yeah, I think it's definitely more Rebecca Nugent and Sam than anything of, of running the, uh, the conference, especially Rebecca Nugent. <laughs> oh, she's a superstar. So yeah. I'm grateful to her for all that as well. But, all right. Thank you, Andrew, Sam. Glad you could join us. Thank Thanks you, for having us. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Open Source Sports Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenSRCSports. You can follow myself, Ron Yurko, at stat underscore Ron, and Costas Pelicrinus at K Pelicrinus. We'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, and you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. Thanks for listening.